Lost Writing, Williamsburg, 1996, Diary Fragment 1. To speak of transdimensional entities does not imply that these things exist in some pristine state elsewhere, in some safely inaccessible dimension or parallel reality. There is no outside of the matter energy systems for humans or their abstractions. The entities of which I write function in and through the interface of concrete and abstract systems. They flourish on the contradictions established by humans to control their imaginary models of reality. As these subjectively internalised socio-cultural models become redundant, as they inevitably must, those human agents closest to the design flaws are taken first. Neither wholly concrete nor wholly imaginary, the entities that emerge at the loci of social disintegration often have the capacity to inhabit their hosts and determine their actions. By capitalising on the dysfunctional components of the control communication systems implanted in the subject, the entities compose themselves from the evil detritus of the cultural imaginary, which has been destroyed, killed, or banished by the ideal system. Last night, a blinding flash of light seemed to issue up from the roots of my spine in a brilliant urinal light, up and out, freezing my entire body in hot paralysis. The idea of a screech owl bursting unexpectedly from inside me settled as the shock retreated. I could not move or feel my body and limbs like they had gone into that state of numbness on the other side of pins and needles, but nothing solid was restricting the blood flow. Why a screech owl? Is there even such an animal? The lysanthrope emerges, transmigrant entity, at the intersection of two time frames, never forgotten, kept alive in the script for children, who, under the forgetful eye of parental reason, inherit the dormant entities long considered the stuff of legend. The Nagual is not bound by biological law, it is not an animal. It is idea and possibility, a thing which travels while it sleeps in word and image. Fetish, migrating along the maritime vectors of the colonial trade machine, fetish in form, fetish in mind, not so much the object of plunders as the adaptive radiation of a slowly evolving mimetic seed. Fetish 1980, Images absorbed, gods directed in theoretical labs, the pagan corresponds with the lunatic across time under the watchful eyes of the doctor. Fetish fuses with phallus, key component of the hysteria mechanism, the deranged body, sprouting, savage reliquaries of incest, clocks running backwards, shoes, beards, nylon spoons, animated by prehistoric sex force, household appliances take control of ejaculation mechanisms, the scalped pianist's locks appease the wild girls, mass hallucination, entranced mobs, moved by the abracadabra of the magician, the priest, the statesman, directors of the collective unconscious, the strategic historical mobilisation of archetypes, mascot of battalions, the virgin of Nicopia. Can the spirit which makes masses desire to take cities be revived? I dreamt that the streets were filled with mobs of ramshackle warriors united in their will to form an army, and take the city as their own. Their appearance was pagan because their weapons and armour were designed for physical contest and signified virility and war far more than they could perform it. They were all men, much bigger than myself. At first I presumed I had travelled back in time, but then I noticed the cars. This was a metropolitan Mad Max scenario, and the warriors were like drunken football hooligans. They beat on everything that was not them. I could recognise no difference in their heraldic markings, just as someone unfamiliar with football can't tell the difference between one team's shirt and another. They were all wearing sportswear customised for street warfare. 
I passed through the streets they were sacking without anxiety for my life. For some reason I was not the enemy. Judging by my uniform I seemed to be a member of some high command. I was looking for four members of the group, a group which I had until recently been conspiring with. Since my forced inscription to the services of the column, I was in charge of finding and turning in all the last significant members of the loosely organised, too loosely it seems, counter-fascist groups. I kicked in the window of a basement where Betsy and four others were hiding. I got my men to round them up and bring them to the conference hall. I pulled the sign of my initiation from the space between my thumb and forefinger, a shard of clear glass the size of a canine tooth. It was night, but a huge twister that was moving steadily towards us lit up the sky. Some people were panicking and looking for shelter as the winds began to pick up. I started to walk in its direction against the flow of people running for cover. The twister, image of disastrous natural force generating itself for seduction, into an entity which humans intoxicated by terror might mistake for a god, a thing whose form is the delineated event of climactic energies, whose path across the solid surface of the globe leaves an undecipherable signature of destruction. I traced its form, saw the undulations which rippled down its sides. Though it looked like a solid, I knew it was not. If it was writing, it was writing of erasure, its nib, a thousand square feet of immediate deconstruction. It seemed to be moving towards a fire, a huge fire, that was its cause, its attraction, extreme heat in the, what do you call that space, the sky. When the twister arrived above its destination, it sucked up the flames which were consuming the building into itself. Thermodynamic food chain or orgy. This was the spectacle of self-consuming energetic monstrosity, the sublime climactic homology of a snake eating a spider. When it was full and the fire extinguished, the twister became rotund and black, its form looser. Then in a thunderous convulsion, it belched a torrent of lightning back up to the heavens.
Hi there, my name is Alexandra Hellenicholas and I'm a film critic, author and academic from Melbourne, Australia. When we think of Carter Burwell, we might most immediately think of his collaborations with the Coen brothers. His first film score was Blood Simple in 1984, followed soon after by Raising Arizona. But tucked in quietly between them is my favourite horror film soundtrack of all time, that for Psycho 3, not just starring but also directed by Anthony Perkins. Everyone has a favourite Psycho sequel, or maybe they don't, but for me this is something so special on its own merits, not just part of the Psycho cinematic universe if we can call it that, but as a horror film in its own right. With Perkins behind the camera we see a humanity that I'm not sure appears in any other film, but it's also combined with a bleakness that I just find such an enormous punch in the guts. Only half-jokingly, I've sometimes told friends that Psycho 3 feels like what we'd get if 90s-era Abel Ferrara directed a Psycho film. And that's perhaps the best way to explain how this particular movie taps into my brain. And of course, much of that has to do with Burwell's extraordinary score, the power of which we feel in the opening moments of the movie. Psycho 3 has, for my money, one of the best film openings of all time. Running for less than three minutes, it starts with a black screen and a woman's voice screaming, there is no God. The rawness and desperation to her voice and the lack of visual content is goosebump inducing, no matter how many times you see it. The screaming woman is a nun called Maureen, played by Diana Scarward, who prays to a cheap statue of Mary for help. In a scene where Perkins' director is very clearly and consciously evoking the finale of Hitchcock's Vertigo, Maureen repeats her opening claims as she shuns the existence of the deity as a gaggle of older nuns beg her to come down from the rooftop that she clearly plans to hurl herself from. Maureen survives, but an older nun plummets to her death trying to save her. In the aftermath, another nun bluntly tells Maureen that she will burn in hell. The piece of music that plays as Maureen in civilian clothes walks away from the convent with her suitcase as the credits roll is literally called Maureen in the Desert, as we see Maureen walk through the desert. As her new life opens up before her, there's a tingling, melancholy beauty to the transformation that lies ahead, for better and for worse, as her path crosses soon enough with the iconic Norman Bates.
a dream of oblivion. The day of time was darkening to its end. The sun hung chill within the blackened noon, its splendors one with night. From planets doomed, the wail of death to empty silence rose. The stars were faint against the glooming vast, like wavering lights upon a windy plain that one by one go out. And even as these, the eternal suns expired and left a void, a huge and black nirvana of the skies, a visible oblivion. Then came down the darkness and the silence on all things, the worlds that eddy like wind-driven leaves within the airless deep, and souls of men, and on all life. The universe was night, and this strange, troubled dream of time and place, a still vacuity. These things I knew, when lo, beneath my feet, the steadfast earth grew nothingness, and down the gulf I fell, and with the darkness and the silence merged. Clark Ashton Smith was a California writer who lived most of his life in a small shack in Auburn on the lower slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Smith was best known for being one of the triumvirate of great writers who crowned the rosters of weird tales, the other two being Robert E. Howard, creator of the Conan stories, and of course, H.P. Lovecraft who was good friends with Smith and corresponded with him frequently, though they never met. But while Smith was a writer of sometimes extraordinary stories of the macabre, the fantastic, and the science fictional, he was originally known and perhaps best understood as a poet. And so I have three poems for you from the pen of Clark Ashton Smith. The Nightmare Tarn I sat beside the moonless tarn alone, in darkness where a mumbling air was blown, a molded air insufferably fraught with dust of plundered charnels. There was not in this my dream but darkness and the wind the blowing dust, the stagnant waters blind, and somber boughs of pine or cypress old, where from a rain of ashes dark and cold at wiles fell on me, or was driven by to feed the tongueless tarn. Within the sky the stars were like a falling phosphor, wan in gutted tombs from which the worms have gone. But though the dust and ashes in one cloud blinded and stifled me as might a shroud, and though the foul putrescent waters gave upon my face the fetters of the grave, 
though all was black corruption and despair, I could not stir, like mandrake rooted there, and with mine every breath I seemed to raise the burdens of some charnel of old days, where, tear on tear, the leaden coffins lie. While sluggish black eternities went by, I waited. On the darkness of my dream there fell nor lantern flame nor lightning gleam, nor gleam of moon or meteor. The wind withdrawn as in some sighing tomb declined, and all the dust was fallen. The waters drear lay still as blood of corpses. Loud and near the cry of one who drowned in her despair came to me from the filthy tarn. The air shuddered thereat, and all my heart was grown a place of fears the nether hell might own, and pray to monstrous wings and beaks malign. For lo, the voice, O dearest love, was thine, and I, I could not stir. The dreadful weight of tomb on ancient tomb accumulate lay on my limbs and stifled all my breath. And when I strove to cry, the dust of death had filled my mouth, nor any whisper came to answer thee who called upon my name. The Tears of Lilith O lovely demon, half-divine, Hemlock and hydromel and gall, Honey and aconite and wine, Mingle to make that mouth of thine, Thy mouth I love. But most of all it is thy tears that I desire, Thy tears like fountain drops that fall In gardens red, satanical or like the tears of mist and fire wept by the moon that wizards use to secret runes when they require some silver filter, sweet and dire.
the human being always felt scared of the real, so we could conform with the most scary thing on our species, which is our own existence. Beyond all the rational fears that we have, ranging from spiders swimming clouds, we try to ignore the fact that our existence is miserable. We try to forget that God is worthless, unfair, and that maybe he could exist, and at this very moment, he's laughing at us. We try to ignore the fact that if I don't pay my taxes, I might not have a roof at the end of the year. I wonder if I could survive in a system that devoured me every single day. I wonder if my friends and family could. And what if they couldn't? How can I live in peace knowing that I was born in the cradle of all evil that the humankind has left me? Is there more absurd fear than just exists? I worry about a cat eating my face if I die most. 
I'm Brian Evanson. Grower in the Snow. The storm was severe enough that Grower and the two brothers had quickly become separated, even while the oldest brother was shouting over the wind that Grower should tie himself to them, or at the very least take hold of his hand. Grower had not been opposed to this, not in the least. Indeed, despite his inexperience with such weather, he sensed it was the safest thing. He was just shoving the canisters and surveying equipment into his pack and heaving it again onto his back when the blizzard struck full force. Almost immediately, he couldn't see a thing. One moment, the brothers were there, dark figures just a few yards away, and then suddenly there was nothing but snow. He tightened the coat's hood around his head, securely buttoning it. For a moment he stood there, braced against the wind, expecting the brothers to come for him. But then, growing anxious when they didn't appear, he lurched toward them. Or at least he lurched in the direction he thought they were. Perhaps he had unwittingly turned out of the wind when the blizzard struck and hadn't realized it. Or perhaps they had already come looking for him and had flailed past just a few spans away, unseeing and unseen. He moved forward and back, stumbling about. He had lost the track of the road as well, he realized with panic. He started to run, boots sinking into the snow, then lost his footing and fell face first into a drift. When he got up, most of the surveying equipment had spilled out of the pack and had vanished under the snow. Between the snow and the darkness, he could see nothing, nothing at all. He stood there, eyes squinted, the wind whistling fast around him. Finally, not knowing what else to do, he dug a hole for himself and curled into it, waiting for the storm to pass. It took an hour, perhaps two, for the snow to finally stop. The wind went on for a good half hour after that, inflicting the surface of the snow with a scab of ice. He heaved the snow away and came up, shaking it off. It was very dark, no moon, stars either masked by clouds or absent from some other incomprehensible reason. Just clouds, he hoped. The only light seemed to come from the snow, ghostly and gray and barely visible all around and unbearable. He shrugged off his pack and searched through it for his flashlight, but it was nowhere to be found. It must have fallen out with the surveying equipment. There would be no finding it now. He squinted. He could see almost nothing, no sign of the road, no footprints. Either the snow had covered them, or they weren't visible in such diminished light. No sign of the brothers, either. He called out, shouted for the brothers. After a moment, he heard a response, dense distant, perhaps muted by the blanket of snow, but still there. Something, anyway. He moved toward it. The going was hard, his boots cracking through the snow's crust with each step to wallow in the powder beneath. He walked for a time, breathed harder and harder, the moisture in his breath freezing on his beard, then hallooed again. Again they responded, but they sounded just as distant. Were they moving away from him rather than toward him? He hurried after the sound. Only after half an hour of that, of call and response and struggle through the snow, did he realize he was hearing the echo of his own voice, that he was walking in pursuit of nothing at all? Numb, he kept walking. The wind picked up, and soon he was very cold, almost unbearably so. 
And then, strangely, he started to feel warm again. He was tempted to stop, but wasn't certain that if he did, he'd be able to start moving again. Just for a moment, he told himself, just to catch my breath. Before he knew it, a tree stood in his path. He leaned against it. He felt sleepy. He shrugged off his pack, and it fell somewhere behind him. Not long after, he was seated, his back against the tree, snow heaped all around him and over him, his legs somehow covered with it, even though none was falling. How had that happened? Just a moment, he thought again, just time to catch my breath, and then I'll go on. He wouldn't have managed to get up at all if he hadn't heard the sound. A kind of distant hiss, far away at first, then growing closer. It was just enough to catch in his ears and bring him back to consciousness. My echo, he thought at first, coming back at me. But as the sound grew louder, it worried him. How could it be his echo when it had been hours since he last opened his mouth? An echo wouldn't live so long. And then it grew very loud indeed, a rushing, roaring sound, and he saw, or thought he saw, almost lost in the trees, a moving beam of light. It was a light, rather than something imagined. He was sure of it. He stumbled to his feet, leaving his pack where it was, and made for the sound. After only a dozen stiff steps, he slowed. The sound was fading away, moving away. I should lie down again, part of him was saying. Just follow the sound, another part of him was saying. It's something to do while you die. The second part was slightly louder, and so he kept walking. The snow got deeper and deeper. He pondered turning around and going back, but back to where? Suddenly he was stumbling and almost went down. Not because of the struggle to push through the snow, but because abruptly there was none to push through. He thought at first he had chanced a plowed road, but it didn't feel like a road underfoot. As he walked down it, he felt what seemed like slats with softer depressions between them. To either side, he saw the faintest glimmers of light, which, slowly, he realized were the lines of rails. He had found the train tracks. A train with a bucker plow must have come through. Perhaps that was the noise he had heard, the light he had seen. He could either keep following the tracks in the direction he had started, or he could turn around and go the other way. Was there any way to tell which way would lead him more quickly to the shelter? No. He kept going the way he was going because it was easier than turning around. He walked for a long time. He began to get cold again and sleepy. The temptation was to stop walking and lie down, but doggedly he continued on. If a train were to come, he realized, there was little chance he could get off the tracks in time. He tried not to worry about this. He concentrated on putting one foot in front of the other. And then, up ahead, the glimmers of light became more complex. He stared as he approached, eventually understood that there were more rails for the light to reflect off of, that he had reached a junction. He stopped at the split. He could keep going down the main track or take the branch line. The branch line might lead to a station or a small town or at the very least a siding where maybe he'd find some modicum of shelter. The main line would, too, eventually, but perhaps not for miles. The branch line, just like the main line, had been plowed. Didn't that indicate it was important? Or did they plow everything just in case? He took the branch line. He wasn't sure how long he walked, maybe 50 meters, maybe several hundred. He was too busy concentrating on keeping moving to pay attention. Eventually, he smelled smoke. 
Not long after that, he saw a line of light, very thin and very sharp, as if someone had sliced clean through the scrim of the dark to reveal a blazing world behind. He was so grateful to see it, he couldn't stop moaning. It took a few dozen steps more before he realized that what he was seeing was a line of light left by an improperly drawn curtain. He could sense the house in front of him, but in the darkness couldn't make sense of it. Couldn't tell for certain what was the darkness of the sky and what was the darkness of the house. Still, it felt strange to him. Off somehow. Only when he was very close indeed did he realize it was not a house at all, but a single train car. He found the steps that led to the compartment door, but didn't have the strength to climb them. They were too steep, and he was too tired. Instead, he draped himself over them and tapped on the base of the door with his gloved fist. It hardly made a sound, just a faint, dull noise as distant as an echo. They won't hear me, he thought. I've made it to the very threshold of shelter, but I can't manage to make them hear me. And then he realized he didn't hear anything either that the passenger car, despite being lit inside, seemed utterly silent. Perhaps, he thought, there is no one to open up for me. Perhaps there is no one there. As soon as he thought this, the door was suddenly flung open. A great cascade of noise poured out, engulfing him. Strong hands took hold of him and dragged him up the stairs and into the compartment. The air inside was so warm he almost fainted. A huge fire roared at the far end of the compartment, obscuring the whole of the back wall, seemingly uncontained. The hands let go of him, and he fell in a heap on the floor. And then they were on him again, grabbing him, lifting him, and patting him on the back, steadying him, only slowly letting go, once they were sure he could stand. A drink was placed in his hand, a clear, viscid liquor of some sort. He took a deep drink. It burned going down and made his vision blur. When his vision returned, a face was in front of him, hairless, even the eyelashes absent, wrinkled. Feeling all right now, the face said, then grimaced. The voice was strange, a kind of tenor whisper that seemed to come at him from every direction at once. He nodded. One shouldn't be out on a night like this, the face said. Only fools are. Where am I? Grower managed. Just a place, said the face and then it stepped back a little farther. The body below the face was clothed in a garment made of long, tattered strips of fabric that pooled on the floor. It was difficult to make out the body's contours within, except in the most general fashion. But even with that, it felt to Grower as if head and body did not belong to one another. A train car, Grower said. It's a train car. Body shrugged. If you like, the face whispered. Grower became afraid. Either it is or it isn't, he said. Face and body bowed deeply without a word, and then upon straightening, led Grower to a seat covered in red velvet. He was helped to sit down, facing the crackling fire that seemed to threaten to consume the far end of the car. Can I stay here until morning, asked Grower. Some time had passed. He felt warmer and very sleepy. He was happy to be alive. The body again bowed deeply. If you like, the face said again, and then waited, attentive. Why is the body still standing there, the face bobbing above it? Grower looked down and realized that trapped beneath his boot were a few of the frayed and tattered ends of the long garment. The body was still standing there because it was unable to leave. He tried to lift his foot, but the foot didn't move. 
What was wrong with him? I seem to be standing on your clothing, he told the other. It's not my clothing, the face said. No, Grower said. What is it? My skin, the face said. He had somehow slipped out of the seat and was lying on the floor of the train car, looking up at the pale, empty face above him. Who are you? he asked. What? The face didn't answer. Can you help me up? he asked. Still no answer. Hello, said Grower. And then a little later, hello? The train car had darkened, he realized. The noise, too, which had seemed so raucous when he first entered, as if it had been the product of a dozen drunks, had subsided to nothing. Now it seemed not even loud enough for this single face and body, who seemed the only other person in the train car, if, in fact, a person at all. Whatever the case, the body had gotten down on hands and knees, and now the face was very close to his own, peering into it. The train will be leaving soon, the face whispered. There is no train, Grower whispered back. There is only this single passenger car. The train is leaving soon, the face repeated. Fine, said Grower from the floor, closing his eyes. Do you have a ticket, the voice asked. Grower ignored it, tried to sleep. No ticket, the voice asked. When he did not respond, hands grasped him and in a single fluid motion lifted him from the floor and to his feet. It left him gasping for breath. It felt like many hands instead of just two. Perhaps more hands were hidden beneath the voluminous, tattered garment, or, rather, skin. Ticket? the voice asked again. He shook his head. A moment later, he was dragged down the aisle to the door and pitched unceremoniously into the snow. When he awoke, it was light outside. One of the brothers was slapping him, saying his name. He turned his head and saw the other brother. Which one was the oldest? With all the frost on their beards and faces, he couldn't tell them apart. He managed to blink, let out a hiss of air. He's alive, said one brother to the other. The second brother didn't bother to answer. Instead, he leaned in close to Grower's face. Grower, he said, we're going to get you out of here. We'll carry you to safety. Just stay with us. All right, he said. Only no sound came out. He blinked. We're not far from the railroad tracks, he said. We'll take you there. With a little luck, a plow train has already gone through and we'll be able to follow them. No, thought Grower. Please, no, he blinked. With a little luck, there'll be a branch line we can take in a kilometer or two that will lead us somewhere we can get you medical attention. No sighting, he tried to say. No passenger car. Go straight. Don't stop. Please, he blinked. The brother offered him a smile, patted his shoulder, then stood. Strong hands grasped him, pulled him roughly to his feet. Up we go then, a voice said. He couldn't tell which of the brothers it was, or even if it was a brother at all. He couldn't feel his legs, but he heard the sound of his feet dragging through the crust of snow. Stay with us, Grower, a voice said. Here we go.
My name is Lindsay Hallam and I'm a senior lecturer in film at the University of East London. I've written two books, Screening the Marquis de Sade, Pleasure, Pain and the Transgressive Body in Film, and a volume on David Lynch's 1992 film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is part of the Devil's Advocate series on horror film classics. Horror cinema is my research specialism and I've written journal articles, book chapters and for magazines and websites on all aspects of the genre. As well as an academic, I'm also a fan. And what I really wanted to speak about today is a film and a soundtrack that embraces the thrills and fun of the genre, while also taking jabs at the notion of horror being a bad influence on its devotees. Dario Argento's Tenebrae was released in 1982, as the heyday of the giallo film was beginning to wane somewhat, after its dominance in 1970s Italian genre cinema. By this point, many were familiar with giallo conventions, centering, as it does, on presenting a series of gory killings at the hands of a black-gloved murderer, and Argento, as one of its most well-known practitioners, had been contending with almost a decade's worth of questions about horror and the giallo's supposed misogyny, gratuitous violence, and the possibility of providing inspiration for copycat crimes. In Tenebrae, we have a best-selling author, Peter Neal, accused of these very things, after a series of murders recreating acts from his books. Peter begins receiving cryptic messages from the murderer, who misinterprets his work as providing justification for eradicating what the killer calls human perversion. What is most striking about Tenebrae, whose title translates to darkness, is actually how bright the film is, taking place mostly in daytime in sunny Rome, populated by characters dressed in a palette of pristine white, soft pastels, and the occasional flash of fire engine red. In contrast to the dark Baroque styling and Gothic architecture of Argento's most famous work, Suspiria, the film is very much of the 1980s, taking place in ultra-modern settings, showcasing more brutalist style structures, sharp angles, and large expanses of glass. For the film's score, Argento enlists Claudio Simonetti, Fabio Pignatelli, and Massimo Morante, all formerly of the band Goblin, who had previously scored Argento's films Profondo Rosso and Suspiria to much acclaim. The trio are not credited as Goblin for this film, and the soundtrack for Tenebrae marks a slight shift from the dark prog rock Goblin was known for, leaning into a heavily synthesised 80s sound. While there are still features of the Gothic with the inclusion of organ, this is combined with electronic elements such as vocoder filters, Moog and Roland synthesizers, and drum machines. This change in sound fits well with the film's distinctive modern design, and is shown to great effect in one particular scene which culminates in the murder of two lesbian ex-lovers. After the two women argue and depart to different rooms, one of the women, Tilda, hears a noise outside, and as she moves to the window, the score fades in. Cutting to a shot outside as the woman peers out, the camera then rises up outside of the house in an extended take, tracking over the grey concrete and wooden shutters, gliding over the rough textures. We briefly glimpse inside at the other woman before coming back out and rising up further over the roof tiles, then descending until we see bolt cutters cut through their shutters. The camera work is meandering and disorienting. It is taking its time, almost as though its only real purpose is to accompany the musical score, when usually it's the other way around. Cutting back to Tilda, who is in pretty much the same spot we left her before the camera's jaunt, she screams, turn it down, which switches the score from being non-diegetic to diegetic, coming from within the world of the film, played by Tilda's lover in an act of spite. A further reveal occurs when Tilda hears a voice off screen hissing at her, she looks in the direction of the camera and then turns away, but a black-gloved hand enters and the shot becomes one of first-person perspective. Tilda meets her demise in a series of quick close-ups, the editing mimicking the slashes of the razor as the music continues to play. The music only stops when we cut to Tilda's lover as she takes the needle off the record. 
This sequence exemplifies the film's 80s-style excess and indulgence, the cold yet bright modern design and smooth camera work working in combination with the hard electronic crunch of the score. In a film that asks the question if art really can kill, it is with some irony that the film ends with an answer that is both pointed and sharp, as well as shiny and bright.
My name is Noza Ono. Welcome to African Horror. Tonight, I'll be reading from my story, The Unclean, which will be released on the 31st of October 2020, available from Amazon and every good retail outlet. So make your date with African Horror on Halloween with The Unclean. The night seemed to go on forever, till suddenly I found myself in a desert-like landscape populated with nothing but giant anthills and the uncountable mounds that housed the corpses of the damned. Like a macabre farm, the mounds grew ghastly white masks, each fortified with charms and potions to chain in the evil dead within the confines of the bad bush. A foul smell pervaded the corpse farm, an odor of badness and decay, a vile smell that I tried in vain to wash off from my son's body. My heart froze, my speech ceased. My head began to swell and expand and my breathing hung. All sounds stopped, vanished, as if cocked inside a soundproof bottle. The noisy insects that had accompanied us through the night, the barking dogs, the hooting owls, all ceased their clamor. Even the very air seemed to succumb to the stillness of the desolate and chilling landscape. In the unnatural silence, I heard the thudding of my heart, like the beating of the drums of the masquerade dancers. I heard the harshness of my breathing and the roaring in my ears. Then I saw them, oh Jesus, Mary, Mother of God. I saw them all, the soulless inhabitants of the accursed land, Ajofia, the doomed outcasts of the gods and men, the unclean, gathered in a silent waiting crowd, hollowed eyes dripping blood as black as tar, each posed in the manner of their demise. They impaled me on the ground by their appalling visage. A young mother, with a rotten fetus dangling between her wide thighs, a large man with a rope tight against his impossibly angled neck, an albino that glowed inhumanly white beneath the brightness of the moon, his body bloated and battered from the beating that caused his demise, a tiny baby wailing and reeling on the ground, his wide mouth exposing a full set of upper teeth. They were the abominations of nature and the rejects of men. And amongst them was my son, my beautiful sweet Ebuka, standing silently in the midst of the other small specters, each doomed for dying before their parents or being born with abominations such as a set of teeth, an extra finger, a single testicle. One second, Ebuka was by my side, his tiny hand gripped firmly in my right hand. Then in a blink, he was gone, gone without a sound without me seeing his departure, only to appear amongst the ghoulish gathering of the damned, the cursed inhabitants of the unhallowed grounds of Arjofia. The sound of my hoe hitting the ground resonated like a thousand footsteps in the awful silence of the burial ground. It also released the voices of the apparitions who started to howl in an unearthly cacophony that chilled the marrow in my bones. My voice joined their discordance terror and panic cloaking my screams. Prayer spilled from my lips, babbles, the distinct sounds of supreme lunacy. Inside my head, Queen Ill-Fortune shrieked in glee, her cackle as manic as my screams. Above us, the moon grew fatter and brighter, 
revealing the ghoulish figures in all their undead horror. I tried to run. I turned to flee, feeling the hot piece of terror flood my thighs. I stumbled against a mask. No, the mask rose against my feet as if flung by an invisible hand. Then all the other white masks joined the attack like a sea of skulls, hurling themselves against my face, battering my body and my head till I fell onto a soft grave, feeling the mud cover my face and fill my screaming mouth. It was the same mud that clung to my son, the vile grave mud of the unhallowed ground that I tried in vain to wash off my son. My fall stilled the masks. They fell to the ground with muffled thumbs. From the corner of my eyes, I saw them scuttle away, countless white masks like the crabs on the beach of River Niger, each returning to the grave mound they guarded, their hollowed eyes watchful, dark and terrifying. In the sudden stillness, I heard another sound, a noise like the roar of the winds. And suddenly, they were everywhere, the ghosts of the damned, in front of me, behind me, at my right side and my left side. And when the light of the moon dimmed above us, I glanced up to see the flying ones, Amos, witch night flyers, who had carried on their nefarious art even to the grave. I felt their hands on me, old hands, clammy hands, post-wet hands, peeling hands, skeletal hands. Reeking bodies swamped me, seeking the warmth of my blood, the light of my humanity, my very soul. I tried to push, to crawl to safety on hands and knees, to be free of the repulsive touch of the foul undead. But I was but a woman, a weak and foolish woman, who should have known better than to challenge the might of the Queen of Malignancy on her most potent night. But desperation was never a person of caution or reason. Desperation would dare the gates of hell and the wrath of Queen Ill Fortune to fulfill its goals. Desperation gave me the voice to scream out my son's name, to call for his aid and his intercession. Desperation fueled my garbled explanations, my pleas for their forgiveness, my supplications for their help in finding my son's grave amongst the hundreds of unmarked mounds that grew in that accursed farm of corpses. Suddenly I was free, free of hands, of bodies, of voices, of the pulsating hate that had engulfed me and left me cowering on the cold, hard soil of Ajofia. Once again, my son was by my side, his little hands filled with an impossible strength, raising me to my feet, his face sad, oh Jesus, so sad. I wanted to die and lie with him in that bad bush for eternity. How can any mother bear to see her child abandoned in such a desolate and terrible place? How could I ever sleep in the warmth of my room when my only child wandered in the dark wilderness of these accursed grounds? How could I walk amongst the living when I knew that my son walked amongst the damned, the restless and angry souls of the accursed?
Mera Mera, La Materia, La Hefa. Carlos's stories gravitated towards this trinity of religious concepts as he told us about his magical cure. After drinking heavily for several months, he had become partially paralysed and unable to continue his work in the hotel and the church. He thought he was going to die. An acquaintance suggested he visit a curandero, which he did. The curandero told him that he could be cured, but at a price that Carlos could not afford. Carlos visited a second curandero. Again, he could be cured, but the price was too high. Worse still, the second curandero told Carlos the precise date he would die if he didn't buy a cure. Carlos was getting sicker, and the prediction of his imminent death wasn't helping. Eventually, a member of a family, for whom Carlos had made a wedding decoration, told him that the family grandmother was a powerful healer, and that, because Carlos had helped them, she would help him too, free of charge. He visited the curandera in a local village a few miles from Catamaco. First, she told him to consider which of his friends may have put a curse on him, to go home, think about it, and return later. This he did. But in contemplating which of his friends may have cursed him, he realised that in fact he had no true friends. All his friends were merely drinking companions, and none cared about him enough to buy him a curse, or a cure. He returned to the curandera and told her. This, she said, was good, and the cure began. First she passed a black cockerel over his body, several times. While she did so, the bird flapped and squawked wildly. Suddenly, she wrenched the cockerel away from his body, and it was dead. The curandera then threw the cockerel onto the fire along with the trash. As it burned, multicoloured flames arose from its body, and as they did so, Carlos felt the spirit return to his own body. This, he said, was mira mira, the passing of life-death forces from one body to another. It was materia which made this possible. Or put differently, it was on the plane of materia that mira mira operated. Carlos closed his eyes as he explained. Materia is what we feel as present, but cannot see, what we only know properly with our eyes closed. I asked Carlos if there were such curanderas here in Catamaco. No, he told me, only in the surrounding villages, Son Tecomapan, Siowapan, Comahuapan. But there were templos. No son iglesias. Son lugares del Espiritísimo. It is here that they have the knowledge of the Mera Mera, la materia, and la jefa. Carlos began to explain la jefa. Ranu ran an association thread between his story, Third Eyes and Indian Bindis. This deflected me onto Ash Wednesday and the ash on the forehead, ashes to ashes, etc. I lost my thread to La Jefa. Ranu had started to dance around the balcony. She wanted to go swimming. We picked up our bottles and walked down to the water. Ranu took off her shoes, hitched her skirt and began to wade into the lake. It was night. A street light illuminated the water for no more than a few yards. After that it was all night. She waded up to her thighs then turned back to the shore. Before she stepped back onto the sand, Carlos took off his t-shirt and dried her feet. Williamsburg 1996 Diary, Fragment 2 We walked out of the village to the place where the stoners hung out, a place of karmic significance, they said. There, in what looked like the ruins of buildings, formations of white shells had been made, 
Most of the shells were mussel shells, wrapped into forms by rusted wire. The old fellow put his face close to mine and began to confide in me. Trust shifted to suspicion as he continued his diatribe against the young hippies who were, quote, all excited about extraterrestrials. He told me that we knew that there was nothing Hollywood about aliens, that we had been communicating with them directly for years. His stubble was turning grey. We were sitting around a campfire. I looked into the girl's face. The weight of recent events poised like elastic. Her blonde bob was all that remained over a metal skull. Her face receded through plates of alloy and glass, wire grids where her brain should have been. She was calm now. They had removed all traces of subjectivity. It was making her, and everyone around her, unnecessarily distraught. I had wanted her to stay. The replacement of her subjectivity was the cost. They had removed any organic component which might harbour its germ. What was left? The blonde bob. I tried to make conversation with the famous actors around the campfire. I told them I would never act again, that the experience of making this film was too much to bear. The one with the droopy moustache suddenly remembered something that made his eyes widen. Flash into earlier scene, the image flickering in and out of vision. He remembered. She sat there waiting. The magic they had messed about with a few weeks ago. How the message was, he didn't think anything of it at the time. But now, the message was, he remembered. Pulling it out of his stomach, we watched the recalled scene cutting into our imaginations, our memory, a red-brown ribbon of words pulled from his stomach which she started to convulse in the same place but before the words spoke to the remnants of herself still trapped within the casting still left in the form of her substituted body she convulsed jerked we pulled back the moustache backed up against the fence hands burst through from behind held his head eyes still wired as a knife slashed slowly through his throat and black blood poured down his shirt suddenly they were everywhere american teenage psychos in death metal t-shirts drunk on beer slashing everything in sight to pieces arms hacked off at the stumps guts sliced from genitals upwards slashing the others slashing themselves like they were dancing a butcher's drunken choreography i felt the razor cut into my spine slicing through the bone once twice three times the knife cut deeper i tried to feel the skin as it peeled off the bone but could only feel this line being cut again and again body with blood and created hundreds of victims. This is the one. Open it. Thank you. 
thought you'd gone to Acapulco. Wait till you see what I got. It's your famous vampire. You profaned it too. History speaks of great doctors who did this. They were working for the good of science. Look, this is not a vampire. This is a normal man. I admit that he liked to drink a little blood occasionally, but that's all. I've seen him before, you know. Hold on a minute. This is a common mirror like a hundred others. He has no reflection. Is that what you're saying? I already know that. That's your mistake. Come here. Is this a trick? It's no trick. But sooner or later, someone begins to question these legends and a scientific fact appears. It's always been that way. But look, vampires don't exist. The only way that one can be killed is by taking a large wooden stake and driving it down into his heart. But this just isn't true. I only want to know how much is not fiction. Don't you know that no mortal man can kill Count Lavoud? Obey the gleam of this brooch. You will call me master. Yes. Master. And protected by darkness, I must hunt blood. Look. Why, Doctor? Why did you take out the stake? The stake? I didn't take it out. Then who did? I consider that cadaver stolen property. You'll put it back exactly where you found it. The dead man is a vampire. A vampire? But my gosh, I knew the coffin was here a minute ago. She is my enemy. No, Doctor. Yes, Doctor. I finished her. Fine. Throw her into the incinerator. That way you'll erase all traces of her. And make haste. Yes, Master. Nurse, have you seen Dr. Marion? No, Doctor. No one knows what's happening around here. A patient could die and they wouldn't find him till morning. I'm attending the patient in number six. I know it's illogical to ask you to believe something after I worked so hard in an effort to get you to forget, but I... The coffin and the vampire have completely vanished. Oh, Did I scare you? No, no, no. I never get scared. Okay, what's the difference then? Well, look, 
A vampire's a horrible beast that should be captured. I'll start right now. Oh, thank you. Are you listening, Lieutenant? Tell your men to set up a dragnet for vampires. I want everyone in jail immediately. That's done. Are you happy now, young man? Vampires, he says. Hmm. Like you said, he must be crazy. But just suppose he was telling the truth. now in the name of my ancestors. For tonight, you and I will be wed for eternity in a ceremony surrounded by darkness. No one is going to see you when you leave the theater. fight against a vampire. Get ready to die. spending the rest of your days behind bars. What did they do to you? What happened? It's all over now. Did you capture the vampire? Yes, I did. Oh, yeah? Where is it? In there. Those stairs lead to the roof. By mistake. I've alluded, I think, in the Ogden book to something that I learned from the trip trips, trips, uh, and that is the, uh, the mirror experience of, uh, and one does not need to be on drugs to have this experience, but it's sort of like looking at yourself, your reflection in the mirror over a sustained period of time, and then eventually the reflection starts to fade away, and pretty soon there is nothing there. So I had that experience 
more pronouncedly under something where all there was was a voice and there was no longer, I don't know where the voice was located and this was up in my studio and this was one time with Don Tito and I, I don't know what the substance was but it was the, you could say an out-of-body experience or it's as though my, and I, I kind of got, Don, where are we, where are we, man? And I said, I got to put my hand in my mouth to get back in my body, you know? And he, he said, you know, you're in your studio. And I wasn't scared. It was just sort of like, wow, this is far out. I wonder where I'm at, because I'm not there anymore. I'm not in there. And I don't, I still to this day, I have no idea what that, that meant. If it was maybe an out-of-body experience. But talking about something is not as the same as an experience which you cannot verbally identify while it's, while it's happening. I don't know what the fuck it was, uh, but it was kind of weird. Another time with uh, Bruce and with Linda, I felt as we were coming out that we were conjoined. We became one, one we were, oh my, my God, how the hell are we going to, how are we going to move? You know, how are we going to walk six legs and... Um, it was so weird because it felt so real. It felt so like we are totally united.
increasingly shaped by false information. This is Vincent Lee, and my fireside reading is titled Skinned Alive, The Phenomenology of Spirit. The world is going to hell, but spirit has never been so sure of itself. At least this is the impression one gets reading the contemporary neo-rationalist philosophers, colloquially known as the neo-rats, even if they are the furthest thing imaginable from the plague-drenched rats which brought Christendom crumbling down at the advent of modernity. To give just one example, even as politics declines into an irrational reality TV circus, and the biosphere boils towards our encroaching heat death, Reza Negarastani, in his 2018 tome Intelligence and Spirit, does not hesitate to reaffirm spirit's transcendence from nature inasmuch as it is free to determine its own norms through the semantic space of public language. For all the talk over the past decade about venturing beyond the great indoors of human narcissism, its gates have never been so sealed, its drawbridges never pulled so high, the weapons for its defence never clenched so closely. But just as a wounded animal fights back the hardest precisely when the hour of its demise is closest at hand, so does spirit's future only seem so assured because it is deeply insecure on the inside. We have suspected that spirit's game of giving and asking for reasons is up ever since Immanuel Kant critiqued our capacity to know the world independently of how it appears to us through the forms of space and time and the categories of the understanding which condition and police the bounds of all possible experience. After Kant came Darwin's devastating account of how we did not evolve over so many random variations to know what the world is actually like, but merely to survive in it long enough to reproduce our genetic data, even at the price of a grand self-deception. So how then can we ever hope to speak of the ineffable, to turn ourselves inside out? Is it ridiculous to suggest that the werewolf, that spectre of primal terror, might be a gateway drug to the beyond? There are few writers who have ventured as deep into the lupin wilderness and lived to tell the tale in such unrelenting grisliness as Whitley Strieber in his 1978 debut novel, The Woofen. Much as Kant compares his critique of reason to the cop on the beat, so does the novel follow New York detectives Becky and George on the case of the gruesome deaths of two fellow boys in blue who were soaked in crimson by impossibly fast-moving shapes before they had any inkling they had less than a minute of life remaining. Wild dogs and violent criminals are quickly ruled out when an expert at the Museum of Natural History, Dr. Ferguson, informs Becky and George that the paw prints left at the crime scene are neither strictly canine nor human. These two Kantians soon find themselves up against that which lusts for nothing less than to feast on their livid entrails as if feasting on slaughtered barnyard pigs. If spirit determines itself through the justified use of expressions according to rules and norms which are asserted, argued and revised by the rational community of free agents, it is difficult to imagine anything more opposed to it than the werewolf. Succumbing to the full moon without delay or indecision, 
A lycanthrop is not free to go its own way. It does not choose when and what to hunt, nor the means of ensnaring its prey. It is pure means turning on itself without any extrinsic ends to pursue outside the ruthless exercise of its own traps, its own cunning, its own delight in the flavour of live flesh. Such is the outsideness of a true predator, hunting for hunting's sake, the kill only important because of the chase. Stripped of their ability to communicate with their former human brethren, the fanged ones cannot give and ask for reasons, let alone commit to them, as they pass the night chattering together and twattling in an unknown tongue. Dr. Ferguson might speculate that it is possible to communicate and even reason with nature's finest killing machines, but when push comes to shove, claw comes to jugular, and he finally comes face to inhuman face, his hand signals had meant nothing to them, nothing at all. Well before the werewolf infects its victims with the lunacy of the moon, it reduces them to a paralyzing silence, or at best, a nonsensical scream. Admitting to nothing and refusing all reasons, the werewolf is fundamentally our enemy. Even amongst themselves there are no prototypical taboos and social customs upon which civilization might be erected. Streamer makes this all too clear when the ravenous pack makes a banquet out of one of their own, almost lustfully delighting in the symphony of his popping bones. Clearly, Canis Lupus Sapien possesses none of Spirit's charms. None of this is to say that the werewolf lacks intelligence. On the contrary, it is even more cunning than us, as Becky discovers when she catches one mimicking a human infant's alluring cries only to violate that innocence with a snarl. It is only natural that a human brain, wired with the concepts of reason, and fused with a canine body's hypersensations would be capable of tracking the vast numinal wilderness better than any furless biped could. Another of the novel's ill-fated Kantians experiences this firsthand when he reaches for the trigger on his 38 firearm only to discover that there was nothing to pull. He looked at the arm, his hand was not there. Blood was pouring out and streaming in the cold, and with horror-struck eyes he saw his hand still clutching the 38 dangling in the creature's mouth. A true out-of-body experience. There is something like poetry in the sound of tendons snapping, of tissue buckling under the pressure of long jagged claws. Among all nature's abominations, it is the lycanthrop that has scratched, at the limits of reason, the ravings of the unknown lands beyond. Thus, lycanthrops are fictitious, but that is just to say that fictions are also lycanthropic. It is the fate of fiction, particularly that of the Grand Grinnell variety, to channel, through language, the breakdown of language itself. Paradoxical as it might seem, writing is extra-semantic, apathetic, and mystical, operating at the outer edges of everything which could possibly be expressed. Could a pack of wolves descending on an exhausted deer be a performance piece, or a lethal bout of rabies amount to a work of art? If streamers writing is anything to go by, they can. Take his 1987 non-fiction book Communion, A True Story, whose far more fitting original title was Body Terror, about a personal encounter with intelligent non-human beings who abducted him from his cabin in much the same way that the wolfen snatched their prey from abandoned car parks and side streets. 
Although Nightcrawler's Streber encountered looked rather different from the Wolfen, he notes that they share an intrinsic obliqueness before which his imagination falls deathly silent. We stand trembling at the Devil's Crossroads where truth and fiction collide. Streber is not the greatest of horror writers, but he did cognize that fiction conjures something outside our most closely guarded values, meanings, and truths. As with all accursed writers who invent by poking their pen where it doesn't belong, like a knife into a bandaged wound, Streber's affliction could be diagnosed as a case of medical lycanthropy, an extremely rare psychiatric disease whereby the infected believes they can shapeshift into animal and other non-human forms. In the severest of cases, the infected loses all sense of reason and the ability to speak as they resort to primitive howls and growls. Lycanthropy also strikes at its prey's motor sensory skills as they regress to crawling on all fours like a quadruped. Lycanthropes can even become predatorial towards their fellow humans, barking and biting at their once familiar family and friends. What Streber had first written about in his fiction, and then experienced firsthand, were the symptoms of his lycanthropy. The outside's repressed animality confronting him with the brute fact of spirit's irrational and inhuman ground. Streber is right. His lupin hallucinations and post-abduction syndrome were real, in the sense that they summoned something that was outside the bounds of possible experience, the very same outside his horror stories had caught upon in their own way. In fiction and lycanthropy, there is an esoteric pact which gnaws at our reason, illuminating it under the full moon where an ancient terror can be glimpsed as the feral truth that spirit must tame if it is to live the only way it knows how, amidst a world of lies. To turn ourselves inside out, to become werewolf, is to gleefully skin every last shred of our humanity to the point where even Deleuze and Guattari's becoming animal looks more like an anthropomorphic foreign toy that children might sleep with to safeguard them from the night's more obscure terrors. To be skinned alive means writing with fangs, deciphering as one does a cryptic communique from beyond the dungeon of reasons in which spirit, that grand inquisitor of truth, can still feel itself to be superior for only so long. Meets back on the menu. My name is Jessica Balanzategi. I'm a lecturer in cinema and screen studies at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. Zach has kindly asked me to speak on the podcast today about my favourite horror movie music. My research specialises in the horror and gothic genres, so this is a topic very close to my heart. I wrote the 2018 book, The Uncanny Child in Transnational Cinema, and I have lots of other publications on the aesthetics and form of horror, including horror's sonic aesthetics. I'm also the founding editor of the book series with Amsterdam University Press Horror and Gothic Media Cultures. And as a horror movie fan, I'm not very good at favourites. I have so many horror movie music loves from Hans Zimmer's undulating string ostinato heavy score for Gore Verbinski's The Ring to the rusty grinding score for Sinister, Scott Derrickson's film 
featuring the music of horror composer extraordinaire Christopher Young, as well as experimental dark ambient bands including Ulva and Aghast. So instead of talking about a favourite, I'm talking today about a horror movie soundtrack that's been persistently ringing in my ears and nesting in my brain since I saw the movie in theatres. I'm talking today about the ethereal, mystical soundtrack for the 2018 film Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos and produced by Spectavision, and featuring Nicolas Cage in one of the best, most furious and most tragic performances of his career. This is the last film music score to be written by the late Icelandic composer Johan Johansson, who died in February 2018, only a few months before the film was released. Uh, actually, according to Johansson's manager, he was working on this right up until the film debuted at Sundance. For me, the memory of seeing this wild and intense revenge film in theatres for the first time will always be etched in my mind. The night I was supposed to go and see it, I actually forgot I had tickets until soon before the start time. So my partner and I had to drop everything, mid-delicious Italian meal, to race into the city and get to the theatre in time. And we arrived just as the movie was about to start and ran into a completely packed theatre. And there are only a couple of seats left, so we had to sit right in front of the screen. And moments after we sat down, the movie erupted onto the screen. So the adrenaline of racing to the theatre combined with the intense audiovisual assault of this film was an experience of sensory overload I haven't been lucky enough to be confronted with again since. Uh, in fact, the closest I've come is Spectavision's other recent Nick Cage film, Colour Out of Space. Little shout out there, I guess, to Spectavision. Love your work. In Mandy... Nick plays Red, a logger who lives a reclusive life in this gorgeously atmospheric place called the Shadow Mountains with his uh, beloved girlfriend, Mandy, obviously the title character. So while walking to work one day, Mandy's captured by an LSD-soaked deviant hippie cult, the Children of the New Dawn, and she meets a horrific end when she's burnt to death by the cult before Red's eyes. He is tied up and gagged, helpless to stop them, unable even to scream out loud in horror while this is unfolding in front of him. And the rest of the film charts Red's quest for bloody revenge against this, as he describes, weirdo hippie types, bikers and gnarly psychos and just crazy evil. Such a wonderful line. The film's incredibly immersive, so from the opening moments you feel fully enfolded in Red and Mandy's 1980s pulp fantasy-tinged world, and Johan Johansson's music sustains this sense of absorption in Red's world and inner turmoil throughout the film. So Johansson's work in prior films like Villeneuve's Arrival and Prisoners combines symphonic expansiveness with digital sound processing. And in Mandy, these kind of expansive sonic textures characteristic of Johansson's work remain, but the genre is very different. The Mandy soundtrack, like the film itself, is metal. The film's visuals, its central Nick Cage performance, and its music are driven by the grating, pounding fury of black and ambient doom metal. So in this film, the music doesn't feel non-diegetic, as in it doesn't feel like it's operating on a different plane outside of the film's fictional world, as film music soundtracks usually do. 
Instead, the music feels like it erupts directly from the strange off-kilter world of the film or from Red's own mind. There are bursts of black metal fury on the soundtrack, combining thrashing guitars with pounding synths, sometimes evocative of John Carpenter. Uh, This happens particularly at those moments when Red's revenge is at its most gory and blood-soaked. But these eruptions of musical fury are counterbalanced with ethereal, wistful synth tones and sparse guitar swells that capture Red's profound love for Mandy and excruciating grief for her loss. So the track I'm playing today is one of these called Death and Ashes. This quaking, desolate piece begins as Red finally manages to free himself from the cult's bindings after Mandy's death and he crawls towards and holds her charred remains. It's a really harrowing moment that haunts the rest of the film because Red can't evacuate it from his mind. And the music registers how, from this moment on, Red's most treasured memories of Mandy will be unbearably tangled with his memories of her traumatic, gruesome death. So as Red crawls to the ashes that are Mandy's remains, distorted bassy strings and synths ebb to a crescendo. When Red first reaches the smoking embers, the outlines of Mandy's face can still be made out amongst the ashes. But as he reaches out to hold what was once Mandy's face, the wind blows the ashes away. And with them, so goes any recognisable feature of Mandy. And at this moment in the soundtrack, a modified version of the sweet, mystical guitar melody that is Mandy's love theme gradually rises out of the dissonant, juddering bass chords. But unlike when we hear Mandy's love theme at the beginning of the film, accompanying scenes of Red and Mandy's blissfully reclusive existence in the Shadow Mountains, when we hear it now, the melody falters and turns back in on itself. The swaying guitar line struggles to push its way through the distorted strings and synths. So for me, the music so powerfully captures this moment when memories of a loved one are supplanted perhaps forever by grief and trauma. And all of this is so viscerally condensed musically and visually by this moment in which Mandy's face is blown away forever by the wind. This track captures the ethereal mix of dread, love and trauma that is the shadowy underside to Red's vengeful rage in Mandy and it captures why I so deeply love this film and its music.
following are three excerpts from Hideous Vociferations on H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, the third chapter of a work in progress entitled Appalling Melodrama, a book of commentaries on the intersections of love, music, and horror. Playing in the background is A Cloud in Circles Among the Loneliness of Mountains from their demo Mountains in the Sky. 1. On Tekeli Lee. The final sentence of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which describes the graduate student Danforth's fantastical, demonic glimpse of Earth's loftiest and most terrible mountains, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness, reads as follows. At the time his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single mad word of all too obvious source, Tekeli Lee, Tekeli Lee. The line, a repetition of a repetition of a repetition and beyond, forms the summit of a series of representations of sonic impressions blended from the beginning of the book with the imaginal horizon of the Antarctic peaks themselves, not to mention their indiscernibly real and fictional sources. As the story's final scene centers around this perilous look of departure, so is its substance anticipated in the first chapter where the sound, already suffused with paintings and pages from the Book of Memory, is sensed by the approaching explorers. Through the desolate summit swept raging, intermittent gusts of terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping, with notes extending over a wide range, and for which some subconscious mnemonic reason seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. The shifting, enigmatic sonic impression, a subtle imaginary sound from some undefined point, a muffled musical piping, stands at the non-locatable center of the text narrative aesthetic, forming the pivot about which Lovecraft's own word turns as a specular interplay of experience and record. In this instance, the psychogeological place where fearful impressions stir memory-informed imaginings in prefiguration of future sorrow. Most literally, the story asks us to hear the sound phrase as a kind of hyperfiction, an artificial ruse on par with the fact of life itself, namely, at once a hypercitation of its literary origin, forbidden sources to which Poe may have had access when writing his Arthur Gordon Pym, and the echo of the originary voice of the great old ones who filtered down from the stars and concocted earth life as a joke or mistake. The final pronunciation of the sound, a fatal internalization of eldritch remoteness, thus carries the tone of a not unlaughing shriek at a cosmic jest so totally on oneself that belief and disbelief outrace each other in irrelevance. It is as if the tale finishes upon perceiving its own impossible boundary, with the sound of a fable hearing repeated its own speech precisely what it can never and only ever hear, the actual word of the living author, the too, too obvious source of Lovecraft himself. For as the narrative moves through several such recurring pauses of auscultation, repetition of listening becoming an asymptotically terminal listening to repetition, so is the musical piping a fairly obvious figural projection of the writer's inspiration, the sign of that ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness, blowing through his voice as muse, the catabatic breath of his antipodal Parnassus. As the geologist narrator Dyer says, imagination could conceive almost anything in connection with this place. Tekeli Lee voices the ever-echoing the ever orogenic horror of imagination, per se. 
as Lovecraft's masterwork plunges the romantic sublime into an abyss of neo-medieval cosmic terror, wherein the nearly Gnostic fallenness of terrestrial nature and the mystical heights of its beauty become maddeningly indistinguishable, so does its final line sound the depths of the author's inspiration as one that mutely takes shape around the range of sound's relation to the temporal world and its beyond, in the opening between the time of sound and the sound of time. 2. On the range of fear. Range, deriving via Proto-Germanic ringas, circle, ring, something curved, from the Proto-Indo-European root scare, to turn, bend, captures the non-unrelated senses of a continuity of objects elevated upon the perceptual horizon and the curved bound of movement and communication, the limit of a domain beyond which things do not normally pass, from which they typically turn around. As Lake reports from the airplane, have spied mountain range ahead, higher than any hitherto seen. Mountains surpass anything in imagination, Everest out of the running, like land of mystery in a dream or gateway to forbidden world of untrodden wonder. Great range, fairly solid, hence can't get any glimpses beyond. In one paragraph, reporting on another aerial pass, Lovecraft seems at pains to interlace the sonic and geologic senses of the term, as his prose ascends to the convergent concept of a cloudy note. Even, if the, even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity, and for a second it seemed that the composite sound included a bizarre musical whistling or piping over a wide range as the blast swept in and out of the omnipresent and resonant cave mouths. There was a cloudy note of reminiscent repulsion in this sound, as complex and unplaceable as any of the other dark impressions. Amidst the synesthetic droning of the mountain atmosphere, the senses of range become almost indistinguishable, lost to each other in a climate of sight and sound that exceeds itself precisely by existing within its material bounds. As the range of one's perception perforce includes all manner of things simultaneously there and not there, lines, shapes, patterns, the whole subtle mirage world of the image itself, so does the concept of mountain range, as if reenacting the curved roving of the eye which sees it, iconically communicate a sense of perception as something that moves in both senses through the boundary of its own obscure limits, always sensing by sensing otherwise, via media that are nowhere and provided by no one. The whole synthetic flow of experience, playing amidst the vast panoply of internal and external objects, all the perceived obstacles of perception, ranges round the world through a neither subjective nor objective geography whose rhythm is inseparable from the presence of time. As time fills a space structuring the distance between the peaks of two nows, so may we see the mysteriously evil, highly subtle and attenuated matter touched in the opalescent sky glimpsed between their, betwixt their summits as an image of time itself, something perceived in, in uh, all perception exactly where and precisely because it cannot be, as if due to the fact that there is elselessly nothing else to be perceived. What Lovecraft loves is not the vision of superessential or divine truth, but the unveiling of distortion itself, the pure horror of the image that sounding the abyssic range of imagination shakes reason, ruining its putative power to transcend materiality and rendering it without ground afloat in a universe of real externality 
the vast cosmos at large, wherein human laws, interests, and emotions have no validity or significance. Where the discourse of mysticism is dedicated, like Mirababa's God Speaks, to the universe, the illusion that sustains reality, Lovecraft's desire appears ordered to the universe as the reality that sustains illusion. Not that this is not a vision of truth, only a truth whose beauty is never free of the phantasm of evil. For a second we gasped in admiration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. In other words, bound to the negative love of time's image, as found in Aristotle's definition of fear, as pain or disturbance, due to imagining, phantasmata, some destructive or painful evil in the future. In turn, the future ranging of fear's sense is thoroughly tied up with the vibrational suspense of sound, the tensioning of time between the fear of sound and the sound of fear, the whole sphere of fear's noise prophesying its future. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. Isaiah 24:18. On 3. On now. Today, the accelerating cosmological horizon, akin to Lovecraft's geologically irrational fantasy of Earth's highest and oldest peaks, is marked by acoustic peaks in the power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background. These features, the oldest fossils in the universe, are both the largest and most distant objects ever seen, and yet they are probably also the smallest, for they are quantum fluctuations zoomed in, by the, in on by the microscope called inflation and hung up in the sky. As Balbi explains in The Music of the Big Bang, acoustic oscillations in the primordial plasma produce the spectrum with a series of harmonic peaks, that is, of maxima at frequency values, integer multiples of the fundamental, just as in an organ pipe. Mountains of time's sound, sounds of time's mountain. If one still turns to the mountains, hearing in them, as Shelley expressed, a voice to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, it is because as objects floating on the horizon of time and eternity, resonating between being's flatness and its awesome verticality, it is because their dimension dwarfs within range of the human hum the twin fictions of history and fear, the whole idea that there is something out there to worry about, to take thought for the morrow over. Is there? Is there really? Since when? He could never have seen so much in one instantaneous glance. Love of the fear and fear of the love of what dwarfs the human, of what strips us of all seemingly proper sense of ourselves, your whole pathetic individual cum species respectability, is not an interesting aspect of the human condition, but an actual invitation to do and become and be what the appalling cosmic melodrama is. As Choran in On the Heights of Despair puts it, why should I live in history? or worry about the social and cultural problems of the age. We must outstrip history, and we can do so only when past, present, and future cease to be important, when where and when we live becomes a matter of indifference. Thus, to climb and return from where one actually exists, to scale the scale of the universe and put beneath oneself all that never did nor ever will matter, 
one must keep time to the rhythm of a different tonality, turn to the sound of a new order of word, one whose waves have the power to recall time's expanding sphere back to a point, erasing the whole space of the hasty world in which you feel the strange need for security, the weird desire to be saved, preserved from anything. Bend your ear toward me, make haste to rescue me, says the psalmist, sounding the fear of human time. Help! On which Augustine comments, this word, accelera, is set down, so that you may understand that this whole time, which to us seems so long while it is rolling along, is really a moment. Whatever has an end is not long.